just as an example. So we think the Fitbit is doing something, but that's not even close to what we're going to ultimately be able to do. You know, what's going to happen is that we're going to get rid of all of these, probably. You know, the watches and the Fitbit, and they'll just be integrated into, uh, into our bodies one way or the other. So are we talking Big Brother, where there'll be a little chip like I have in my dog, so I'll know what happens if somebody takes it? You have that chip in your dog? I definitely have it. Well, you put that in my 16-year-old daughter. <laughs> but yes, and I think, you know, there's a lot of concern about cybersecurity. And I think we're going to, you know, that's going to be a big issue once we have these devices in that we won't be taking over. It's like a sci fi Dr. Martinez, I was just sitting here thinking because um, in doing some research for this, I've learned that Google has, with its partner, invested a half a billion dollars in a new company that, according to Larry Page, has the mission of, quote, curing death. Curing death? Curing death. You've heard me right. And they're not the only group that's working on this. Bill Gates recently said in the effort, he said, quote, seems pretty egocentric. While we still have malaria and TB, for rich people to be funding stuff so they can live longer. It would be nice to live longer, though, I admit. So, I mean, the richest dude made that comment. What do you think about that goal? Uh, first of all, death doesn't need to be cured because death is not an illness. Death is a natural process. In here we get into complex matter, right? because you have the physical body, you have consciousness, right? and if you, when you're talking about death, usually you're talking about your spirit, soul, your consciousness, whatever you want to call it, somehow you know, leaving the body. But the body is going to decay. Matter changes continuously. Right? Nothing stays the same, so the idea that you can stay in your form, right, in your body and not die is just silly, because We'll Don't tell us Kardashians that baby. They want to know. So you can regenerate yourself. Perhaps you can live longer. You know, I should announce now. Six days ago, I had the worst bicycle accident that I had in my life, and my face was almost totally disfigured. I lost some teeth. You know, good work about my, my my dentist, right? And I I was eating, uh, drinking my own cooler, and like putting two reports on myself to decrease inflammation and all that. So there's a lot that you can do materially in the body to maintain it, but eventually it's going to go. So if we're going to survive, it's not going to be in physical form if we're not going to die. It's going to be in spiritual form, to, to use those terms, uh, in, in some form of consciousness in that way. But I don't, the idea that you can maintain the body as it is like that, it just sounds silly to me. You, Dr. Ortiz, do you see it as silly? I mean, because you all are making such strides and keeping the body alive long. Um, I'm very grateful for that. The ability to take a heart out of the body, sort of put it in a silver dish, have a machine keep you alive for the 22 minutes that the heart is out of my body, that's, that sounds like the Jetsons, but I know that it actually happens. Yeah, so, so, yes, we're in the business of helping people and uh, helping sick people specifically. And extending life in a certain way. We are. We definitely are. Uh, when, for example, specific examples of myself, people, when they come with a stroke or with a ruptured brain aneurysm or with a brain tumor, these are all life threatening, all of them. That in most instances, they are not treated 
the person might die uh, in days, weeks, months from that moment when that episode occurs. And we have advanced in technology to a point in which, and an acknowledged, technology and knowledge, in which we can prevent some of these instances from happening, number one, which is more important than taking care of it after it already happened. Um, but we are also able to diagnose the problem, find the solution operative, maintain the person with machinery, sustaining life for weeks at a time in an intensive unit with uh, supplemental oxygenation, supplemental uh, feelings, uh, uh, making sure that you correct the electrolyte imbalances, any irregular heartbeats, preventing infections and or treating infections in that period of time. And eventually, three, four, five, six months later, we see that person coming back to our office, walking and talking and having a, uh, as normal a life as possible. Obviously, not every case, not every situation is that, uh, has that great outcome. But yes, we do have those instances. So yes, we're prolonging life. Um, are we going to be able to cure deaths? You see those words? Not today. Not today. But there are many things that we know today that we have no idea about them even five years ago. So, so it is uh, uh, definitely an important topic, uh, at least conceptually, to think about and uh, ethically to, to, to discuss. Uh, this morning, uh, we were sharing some information about artificial intelligence. So it, it is extremely important that the ethical conversation is at the center of all these uh, uh, new developments because uh, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, and, uh, but, but, but I do believe that it is important to continue to grow, continue to work together, to develop new ways, help uh, taking advantage of the technology uh, developments and uh, 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 be healthier in the future. I was going to piggyback on exactly something you said because you brought up a, a trigger for me. Um, Dr. Mendenhall, how do we balance quality of life as we seek to be able to extend life? How do we balance quality of life as we seek to extend life? I think it is time management and healthy choices, healthier choices, ethical choices, as you just stated. So being able to make sure that there is that balance, that ecosystem of knowing what is less is more and being able to balance those things. You spoke earlier about your cheeseburger, you would order it with the double and you could say double waffle with cheese and the extra ketchup. I think that quality of life needs to be the staple for the future. A good quality of life and just knowing how to persevere. We can't cheat death, we can't get past that, but that needs to become a staple in the new healthcare reform of just knowing about the quality of life and being informed about all aspects. We've heard um, a lot about some of the technology that we're moving into. Dr. Ortiz, you really, I'm sorry, um, uh, Dr. Martinez, you really want to emphasize the doctoring 
within the technology? Well, yes and no, because the technology that I'm introducing, and this is technology, the, the, the sinking boat, mm -hmm. the tuning force, right? That's technology, right? And, and, I, and, and I use that, and that's an ancient technology. Right. These boats have been used for thousands of, of years in that way. And the tuning forks that I use specifically, which were designed by men named John Deleuze, they're, they're tuned to what is called a perfect fit. We have a lot of different ones that are tuned to different things, but this one is tuned to a perfect fit, fit which has been called the golden mean or the golden ratio. Right? And it's supposed to send the vibration to your body and bring you into that. So that's all, te all technology mm -hmm. in there. But the technology without the consciousness, doesn't really do all that much. So it's going back to this ethical question of making sure that we keep a balance, a healthy balance Correct. of ethics with our quest to know more, to do more, to live longer. So what are the limitations um, for development of innovation in, say, IT of care? Because I know this is your expertise. Do we have limits? Do we have limits? You know, um, I have a saying that I think all of us are infinite beings with uh, infinite possibilities and play along with some of the elements of your spiritual spiritualness. So in that context, I think we don't. I think that uh, our brains, whether you uh, believe this sacred or not, are connected to a higher consciousness. And one of the questions that, that I get asked uh, as an astronaut when I'm away from the planet and looking back at the Earth, uh, did it change me in any way? And I like to describe it, you know, if you, you could come with me, I mean, it's on my second mission, I was on the end of the robotic arm, where I was outside of the vehicle, in the space we want. And I looked down at the uh, crew that was in the spaceship. Behind that was the planet Earth, as we were going around at 17,500 miles an hour. And behind that, was a sea of stars called the Milky Way. And to our knowledge, that extends forever. And if you believe, I think someone said earlier that this started from a big bang and it continues to expand. Uh, so the question is, where did the big bang come from? Where did that, those first concentrations of molecules come from? And where are they going into? I think they're going into consciousness of God. That's kind of my belief in, in this sort of thing. From that standpoint, we're all part of that consciousness, and so we're all part of that infiniteness, as I like to say. So, you know, I should tell you that uh, this whole story just reminded me, we have behind all of this wonder, majesty, and technology, it's just some stars in the back, <laughs> which is kind of cool. So I'm not sure if it's the deity, or is it still the unknown? And I think that uh, Dr. Tisha could point to make point. Yes, uh, I was going to do a little follow-up on, on your question. Yes, sir. Specifically about what are the limitations for the development of technology ethics. Right. And uh, now looking for similarities between rocket science and brain surgery. And, uh, and actually other fields, uh, uh, we in medicine, especially, specifically the operating room, we depend on products in which everything has to be standardized and done every time the same way to decrease the chance of having a problem, to de decrease the chance of having a complication 
increasing opportunity of human complication. That's almost operating from a position of fear then, rather than innovation. Exactly. So that's the dichotomy that exists in medicine. You are mandated, you, you want that horrible, the standardization of healthcare. Whatever happens in the world, we have what's called timeouts, which is when someone comes in, and, and this is based on previous complications. Uh, when someone comes to the operating room, everybody has to stop doing what they're doing, and the uh, lead surgeon, the assistant, the nurses, the technologists, everybody involved has to stop, has to look at each other, introduce each other in the room, say uh, the name of the patient that they're going to be operating, the medical uh, record number, the date of birth of the patient, are there any allergies, which is the side of the brain we're operating, right or left? Uh, the, the left is the correct side, or the, the left is the right side, because then people are confused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming this is not when somebody who just had an aneurysm to call. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is just, and this is a three minute thing, but just before starting surgery. So when that's, this standardization is happening, you are in, in many ways acting against innovation. You don't want people to get away with the line of, of what we know. And uh, that's a balance that I think is difficult to achieve when you work within those walls of the hospital. Uh, but that's why it is important that we need forums like this, where people from different backgrounds are sharing ideas, and uh, maybe someone has a solution to this type of problem. By the way, that uh, the whole standardization of the operating room and how we uh, do things in, in healthcare actually came from aviation. And, and here I go again, the space program. <laughs> in the sense that, again, we also operate in fear. We always have redundancy. When we first started the Apollo program, we had triple redundancy. Now we just go to double redundancy. Being enough, just kind of doing, uh, you know, taking, limiting our, our risk. But all of those standards were done for aviation to make it safer. So to your point, yeah. Do you, um, I was just sitting here thinking, um, Professor Lindenhall, as we standardize, standardize all of the procedures, do we lose some of the personalized care that um, innovation allows us and illness almost requires? I think so. I think just because of regulatory things and certain companies, drug companies, there's this regulatory FDA requirement that sometimes you can't bypass. Um, I have a a colleague that used to be a big person in Pfizer, the drug company. And we're talking about my invention, the probability of it, what it can do. And one of the main concerns he discussed with me was the other drug companies not wanting that to manifest because of if it's curing, it may not want to be in the, the threshold because we want to keep dispensing you know, the, the staples, the band-aids, versus actually providing the cure for that. So that was one of the, the issues he provided to me with a lot of the regulatory things and the corporate corporatization of drugs about how personalizing things could 
just get some backlash mm. moving up the ladder because of certain things like that. And it impacts on the finances, right? Yes, of course. Dr. Martinez, are doctors just repairmen? Uh, the good news is this. <laughs> I think there's a growing, growing movement. You know, as a sound healer, by the way, I'm part of a pretty large community now. I started this uh, in the 70s. I used to teach a voice workshop and, and so I was the kids even they used to come in and think they were coming in here to learn how to sing. And but I was there to teach them how to use their voice to help to heal themselves and to gain self-confidence right, and learn to express themselves better. So for years I've been doing this work by myself intuitively until I discovered a few years ago there's a large community of sound healers and people. So I think things are changing. In, Society, I, I think that people are beginning to realize more and more that just treating people um, as body parts or treating systems and all that doesn't really work for most people. You know, I have a lot of patients who come to me. Most of them, of course, the ones who do this are educated, and they'll say, "You know, my my cardiologist gave me this pill, but I'm not taking it until I talk to you and you tell me that it's okay." And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Take the pill. And if you don't trust your cardiologist, go to them. But why does that happen? Because that doctor is not connected with them. Right. Right. That doctor is not a healer. Right. Also, a, a, a lot of my patients, if not most of them, they're taking medication. They don't even know what it is or what it's for. I have a little green pill for the morning, I have a little yellow pill. Well, what is it? What is it for? They don't know. Especially in uh, low-income or minority communities. Yes. Um, that's something that I uh, know full well, especially as it relates to heart disease. Um, minority community operates in fear a lot. What you don't know won't hurt you, but in reality, what you don't know will kill you. Is there something that we can learn from Eastern medicine that can assist us with the technology that we're using in Western medicine? Well, there's a lot, not only that we can learn, but there's a lot that we have learned already. In fact, yeah, I spoke a little bit about quantum physics, but the conclusions that quantum physicists came to are nearly identical to the conclusion that mystics have come out to. In fact, a few years ago, somebody did an experiment, a guy named Jay Machan, where he sent out questions about the nature of the universe and all that to a bunch of well-known mystics and physicists. And then he took them all back and he mixed them up and he sent them back to them and he asked them, you know, can you tell who wrote this statement, a physicist right? or a mystic? And they couldn't tell and distinguish them. So there's a lot that we have learned already. But really, the main thing to learn here is just, just to care about your patients. If you love your patients, if you care about them, and you truly want to help them, that will make all the difference in the world. You don't even have to be necessarily all that knowledgeable. You could look up a lot of stuff. I'm not saying that it's okay to be ignorant as a doctor, right? But you can look up a lot of stuff. But what, what you can't look up, what you can't make up, is to have that desire that you want to help your patients, right? That you want to heal them, right? And when they feel that, right, that makes the biggest impact. So to say that that's, I don't know if that's an Eastern influence, but I think outside of, if you look at traditional societies, you know, Healing always involved that interaction between the person. It's not, it was never really something that you do to people. 
you know, while they're there. And the epitome, of, of course, of, of that would be like in, in surgery where, you know, you're, you're, you're treating the, the body there, but the good surgeons, right, and, and I think you can say this, right, they connect with their patients. They care about them. They come after, they talk to their patients, you know, and, and they follow them up in that way. And my patients who have surgery, you know, will speak about surgery, he's a good surgeon. He really cares, you know. They have really, most of the time, no real criteria to evaluate whether you're really good or not, whether you know what you're doing or not, right? But they feel that from you. And that helps, I believe, the surgery, the, rec the recovery, and the healing process. I don't know if, if you would agree with that or not. The answer is yes, uh, the personal touch, like you said, makes all the difference. When, when you're taking care of someone, that person is there. Uh, and uh, that person is lost, uh, the person is concerned, the family members found a lot. So, so you need to connect with that individual and their support uh, circle around them. Uh, and going back to the, that specific example that you mentioned of someone uh, that doesn't know their medication, doesn't take their medication, a low socioeconomic status that uh, many people think, no, I don't want to do that procedure because I don't want you to do research on it. And, uh, and in the Latino communities, we see that a lot. And the African American community also, the first thing that you're going to hear is Tuskegee. Yes, yes. And, 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 People come uh, from different cultural backgrounds, and it is extremely important that us, as healthcare providers, as doctors, we connect with that reality, with the reality of that individual and their uh, culture, their family members. They want to know. Uh, you tell them, oh, you cannot uh, eat uh, red meat, you cannot uh, uh, eat sweets, you cannot uh, this and this and that, but they have one daughter to go for the one daughter menu. And that's what they can afford. So you cannot ask them to eat salmon every day. Or they need to eat what the reality is. So you need to be able and conscientious and sensitive to those needs in order to connect with them so that they can really improve. You can do the most beautiful procedure in the world, if they don't take the medication the next day, that's over. You know, it's interesting because I needed different things from different doctors, and I can share this. From my cardiologist, I needed him to be the smartest, most secure, most arrogant, definite person on the planet because he's the one that said I needed to have my heart taken out of my body. I want to make sure you know more than everybody in the room. But from the surgeon, the actual one who would cut me open and take my heart out, he was the person that prayed with me before I went into the operating room. Now, if I had Dr. Fuster praying, I might have had a problem because the white man pray now. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> but the surgeon and his prayer was that God God guide my hands. That's so he was in tune with what I needed at that time. So I'm thinking, especially to the innovators, the tech people here, uh, what, how does all of this innovation impact on um, the patient's privacy and fears of being exposed to the world? Because that is a big issue with a lot of people in the minority community. And Dr. Ortiz, I know that you've thought about this. 
So, the, the, our specific example, e-discharge. E-discharge, I was going to ask you about that. The government put e-discharge in. You try to give people an opportunity to go home and have your very own uh, doctor in your pocket to tell you what to do. So, so with our specific targets, uh, uh, we have had that question many times. And, and the answer is, we're giving this to the patient. The patient is the owner of this information. They can do with it whatever they want. Most people are concerned about privacy, and, and, and especially in the, in the room where there are many lawyers and talking about what's going to happen, what is, what we get sued, and this and that. But at the end of the day, this is the patient's information that we're giving back to the patient. We're not giving it to anybody else. And that patient, actually, these people are putting these views in YouTube. These people are putting these views in, in Facebook. Because we, we tell so much about ourselves. Exactly. We're not doing that. They are doing it themselves. Us, and, and this is in terms of uh, privacy reasons, this is double password protectors or anybody to be able to access it has to enter two different passwords. They only go to the emails, uh, the email that they gave us. So, so we are not concerned. We're not concerned with uh, uh, privacy issues because we're giving this information to the patient. They are the owner. And this is all so that they know themselves better. Some doctors get concerned. What if I say something wrong though? What if there's evidence? What if I, I miss something and there is a... Yeah, it's operating in fear again. And the answer is that we tell them to these people is everything that we're doing is to get the person more informed. They're thankful for that. People, and they, there's, that is, there's a disconnect today in, in healthcare. These, there are no leaders. You said it, very few people are. And, and so we, giving this entire information, this library of information to the patient about themselves, about their problem that they went through, that they went through, was no solutions and risks. This is something invaluable. That's e-discharge, and I'm going to go back to something Dr. Harris and I, we started talking about. The chip is in my puppy right now, okay? That is ultimately going to be in your 16-year-old, uh, and maybe in my next husband. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I want to know if with the hacks that I read about every day, um, with uh, Snowden running around dropping dime on people, can we actually protect that information that's going to ultimately be on that chip that'll be somewhere in my, um, implanted in my hand 20 years from now? That, that certainly is a good question. By the way, my daughter's 23 now, it's too late. Okay. <laughs> she's, she's on her own. But, um, you know, you guys, I want to comment about a couple of things. And one is the utilization of technology for uh, taking care of the patients. I mean, this, these days, we can do that. Uh, one of our companies is a telepsychiatry company. You would never think that people would do, use telemedicine to do psychiatry. But we've gotten so used to technology in our lives. And you, you mentioned that some of your patients actually take their information, put it on Facebook or whatever, on, on, on Twitter. So we're used to sharing that. So it does really bring up this, this issue of how do you manage, manage some data. Uh, it is the patient's data. Uh, 
we need to provide an environment that allows them to not only have access to that data, but, but be able to use that data to, to keep themselves well. And I think we're, uh, because of all the technology that's being developed, this is the first time that we can actually provide preventive medicine and, and continue care. Uh, and that's sort of been the panacea for, for doctors. But again, all that information now is mobile on our platforms, different mobile platforms on, on the internet. And how do you manage that? Of course, the government has uh, something called HIPAA compliance. It, it really mandates the information that we can share. And as a doctor, I can't share that information unless you allow me to share that information. Once that information then leaves you know, my office, if I'm talking to you, another doctor, it has to be encrypted. And once it gets there, then it can open up and, and same thing, same thing with the patient. So we, we are going to have to figure out some way in which to manage all of this data. I don't have the, I don't have the answers, mm -hmm. but I can tell you, in the business community, cybersecurity <coughs> is probably one of the, the top things that we're, that we're dealing with today, and we're going to have to figure something out. So we're going to do this because the genie's out of the bottle. I'm going to ask that the house lights come up a little bit in case there's some people with questions. We have a few moments in our schedule that would allow. So there's some microphones on both both aisles. I'm not able to see very well in the dark, but if you if there's somebody that is at a microphone and would like to ask a question, please uh, indicate so that I can uh, acknowledge you and let you participate in our discussion. Um, but before I go out to the audience, um, the, uh, Professor Mendenhall, We've been talking a lot about innovation. You're somebody who saw a problem and decided, I can fix this. Is that what we need more of? I think so. I, I truly think we need more of innovation from a scientific perspective, looking at the basic sciences. Ultimately, physicians started out as scientists and really going back to that foundation of looking at the problem scientifically, the pathology whatever it is, and figuring out a way scientifically that we can go about solving that, and then innovating it to make it better, innovative technology, or whatever the case may be. With my jails in particular, um, one of the main things I looked at and compared was looking at how an oral dispersion or drug delivery system would affect, and we also have different formulations for that as well for phase two of our company, but for the jails, I wanted to take it a different approach and look at a more localized healing mechanism versus someone having to take a pill and it disperses out and the pharmacokinetics and then they get 10 milligrams of something. So again, you're, re you're regimenting this for another 10 years until something happens. So that was one of the key things I wanted to just take a spin on it to create a scientific answer to a medical problem. And with more doctors uh, using innovation, using technology, it's as if you're focusing, as Dr. Martina said earlier, on the healing, not just the treatment. Yeah. So that that's the end result. Let me go out to the audience. Yes, sir? Hello. Okay. Um, thank you all for coming up here and uh, sharing your stories with us and talking about the medical field. I had a question about if anybody up here has any thoughts on uh, innovating the medical field in the sense of 
you know, I know now there, it takes so much money to like go through all the medical trials and go through all of the uh, things you have to do to get new technology, to get new innovations even into the hands of doctors so they can treat uh, patients. And I was wondering if there's anything around innovating that process or innovating, you know, how uh, people, well, well, people with good ideas but maybe not the money to afford those trials. You know, how we can move that type of thing. <coughs> Just curious. So, focusing that, um, uh, you're our entrepreneur uh, here down here. I was just going to mention from a you know, technology standpoint, there are a number of uh, incubators or accelerators around the country now that's trying to help entrepreneurs uh, take their ideas and uh, provide uh, you know, kind of the, the uh, experience and expertise that you need to move it from here, you know, from A to B. And uh, those of us who have been inventors and looking at innovation, you know, there's a gap between the idea, of course, and, and bringing it to the market. And that gap is the valley of death we're talking about. To get across that valley of death, you need knowledge and you need resources, i.e. money, in order to do that. So um, there, there are funders out there that do seed stage investments. We, we do that. And uh, there are you know, investors that, that help you, in, you know, along the way. I thought where you were going with that question is how do we speed up the innovative, uh, the whole innovative process in healthcare in general, right? So from, I'll take pharmaceuticals as an example, you know, when you have, for example, a drug like yours, it takes years to get it to market because of all the testing that's required from, from the FDA. How do we speed up that process? I think everybody recognizes that that is a that is a you know, onerous process, onerous process. And it, it depends on the, 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 the component you have. So again, for medicinal chemistry, so if you've created an actual drug, that could take 15, 20 years to bring to market. Um, with the gels, there's a loophole because it's a medical device. So it's classified as a medical device with FDA. So that's another loophole that you kind of have to figure out, again, when you're starting to research what, how you're changing this technology, how you're innovating it, you have to kind of set the stage early and do your research early so you can kind of figure out again about the incubators. There are a lot of um, startup funds, uh, a lot of venture capitalists that can help, but I think time is the main component. The time issue of kind of trying to grasp how long it could take to get from one phase to the next and the money affiliated with that. Thank you. I think the next question is that. Hello, my name is Yolanda. I'm the editor of DryerVest.com. I've spent the last year in my first year of caregiver mode. And I'm just ready to say that I don't want to see another doctor with another piece of technology. Uh, I was in the hospital room with my mother since Christmas Day, six months in the hospitals. And I looked up one day and there were four computers in the room and no doctors, no nurses. And the nurse came in to do a procedure at the time that my mother was having a breathing treatment. And I sat and I timed her to see when she would notice that she was having a breathing treatment. I'm like, she can't do that while she's having a breathing treatment. She had to look at her computer and say, oh, I see you're having a breathing treatment. And I'm like, how come you can look at the patient? Never mind, hear the breathing treatment. And then I had to sit in a room with doctors and nurses and say to them, I think my mother is having a stroke. 
traumatizing thing that I have to live with for the rest of my life to say to a doctor who's on the phone with another doctor, oh, I think she's responding fine. I'm like, she doesn't recognize her only child. She's looking terrified. She's traumatized. I think my mother's having a stroke because I'm getting this information from my smartphone. And I'm in the room with doctors and nurses with their computers and their technology that's telling them to spend five minutes with this patient. So do we, are we at a point now where we have too much technology? I had to fight to get out of that place into an ambulance. They didn't tell the, the paramedics what that this was stroke protocol, that we only have a window to deal with her stroke. Am I right? I get to the hospital and they gotta apologize to me because we're beyond stroke protocol. Now I have to spend the rest of my life remembering what my mother is telling me about. But I had all these doctors and all these technologies and they couldn't look at the patient long enough to see that the woman was having a stroke in front of them. She didn't have a stroke at home. We had a stroke at the hospital. The, the problem there is not too much technology. Not enough caring. Exactly. Right. Right. It's it's not, to relying too much on the technology right. to say, okay, touch the patient, look at the patient, talk to the patient. <laughs> Here's what you ask the patient. How do they not know that anymore? They, you know, I, I trained at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, and when I was a resident there, I was part of a team that got together to design a unit which we call the Plain Tree Unit, and it's supposed to be a patient-oriented unit. And we were looking at things like, you know, you're in a room with four, let's say you, know, you get hospitalized at, at two in the morning, you go into a room with three other people, they bring you in, they turn on all the lights, right, to examine you, you have all the machines, doing all that stuff. The other three patients who are sick themselves are like, right, and then the nurses go, they do what they gotta do. An hour and a half later, the resident comes in, right, because he's, he's on call, he's gotta do right. And he comes in, he turns on all the lights, and he goes, hello, Mrs. Jones, how are you? Are you okay, mama? Are you in pain? Right? And all the other patients are awake, you know that? Just simple things, you know, like like this. The equipment that you have, where you place them, you know. But again, the problem here is not too much technology, you know. Look at these guys, these guys are both technology guys. I'm sure they're like really caring, you know, they've been carrying items. It's the systems that we create, right? And when people join systems and they assume roles, many times they forget their humanity. Mm -hmm. Remember that a lot of the black people who've been killed by cops, right? There've been black cops in there doing that also. Once they become cops, right? And, and they, they assume that role. So when you walk into a hospital and into a system like that and things are being done like that, people kind of just flow into it. The last time that I was in the hospital, I decided that's it. I was a medical director in three hospitals, and even being in charge, I said, that's it, I don't want to do this anymore. For the reasons that you're pointing out. I'm also in media, so how do I tell that story without the pain and the trauma and get some results? Because I'm the voice, so they're like, we're going to fix it for you. I'm like, you can't just fix it for me. Let's fix the hospital. Let's fix everybody. So I think that uh, the issue that you're dealing with has to do with the medical uh, training. Uh, so I'm, I'm on the staff of Baylor College Medicine, also at the University of Texas Medical Branch. And what we don't do, we teach them all the gadgets, we teach them how to do the diagnosis and treatment, but what we don't treat them, uh, teach them is passion. 
my passion for that picture. There was, uh, and I can't remember what medical school it was, but they actually made that as one of their courses where they brought someone in like you who had a bad outcome and could actually put a face, a human face, to the, to the patient, to patient care. And it made a world of difference. And we need to add that to our, our, our medical training. And by the way, my, my mom's in a, uh, a nursing home right now, and we had, uh, even though I'm a physician, and my sister's a nurse, we had the same issues. We have forgotten how to treat people you know, you know, like human beings. Um, I'm, first of all, I'm very sorry you have to go through that. That sounds horrible for you, for your mother, and for the entire family. Um, one thing that was obviously missing in that hospital was communication. Communication between healthcare providers teaching others how to deal with an emergency, how to talk to another human being, how to take care of someone, one. Number two, obviously those people that were there in that room with you, they did not communicate with you at all. You didn't understand what was going on. Most likely they didn't understand what was going on. In an ideal scenario, like what President McKinney said, the, mach the machinery is, is not their fault. Or the technology is not the fault of technology. It is that we, us as human beings, doctor, nurse, the person that is suffering from a condition, we need to be together. We need to work together. That patient experience, that patient education, will significantly improve if that person would explain even the reason why the computer is there. We have a computer in this room because we need to do this and this and the other. So that you understand that.
play both sides. Believe that the way to solve uh, some of the, the major issues, heart disease, diabetes, is, is through genetic manipulation using stem cells. You've heard the, you've heard the debates. Uh, there are others on the other side of the fence that say that we shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. And I think that is probably going to play out in the next, next few years. Uh, you've probably heard of the term personalized medicine. Part of that personalized medicine also use genetics or it can actually uh, use uh, the, defining what your genetic makeup is or your uh, treatment. And so I think that's going to be, that's going to be big, but I think you're going to see people go something like that. Thank you very much for your question. And sir, we'll be on the last question from the audience. Thank you. So I applaud you all for all the hard work you're doing. I see the diligence, and I feel like it's very important. So my question is, um, a lot of you mentioned, you know, the adoption rate can be, can take a while as far as these new technologies and these new medicines. So what type of educational structures are in place or conversations are you all having around um, not only just the systems in place that prevent the technology to get to the consumer, but specifically the consumer and educating them to be comfortable and not working out of fear or operating out of fear um, to get to those new medicines. So that, that's definitely a, a limiting factor uh, today. Even whenever a, a product is conceptualized or a treatment, um, those are two separate things. One is treatments, one is a technology product uh, in which you need engagement of the patient. To get engagement of the patient from a uh, communication technology standpoint, it has to be one by one. And you need to establish an infrastructure in your system, in your hospital, in your office, that will be able to support that training, that communication, so that the person gets familiarized. In terms of uh, uh, whenever there's a treatment or a device that gets uh, developed in order to get that to the, to the hands or people, that's forums like this are important. That's when people go to medical conferences and learn uh, whoever is a, a leader in the field or a leading institution in the field that has done already all the research uh, uh, with numbers that went through the basic science and then the, the animal stage and the human clinical trial and then can export that uh, and relate that information to the rest of the audience in the room. That's how this gets translated. So those are two different uh, uh, topics, but uh, I agree with you. It's very important. Thank you very much. I'm going to uh, thank you. Thank you all for your questions.
space. There are other things that technology will move into now, and we're just starting to dwell into it. Again, go back to the issue of cybersecurity, make sure everything will be stable. But I think there's so many ways we can approach healing people with basic science that we haven't even begun to think about. Because again, we've always just been treating things, not looking at curing it. So I think the possibilities are infinite. And that's why we need the young minds to start to think about these possibilities, talk to physicians, see what their issues are in the operating room, see what you can do to help them work more comfortably, to make their surgeries more comfortable and actually make their lives easier and the healing process faster. That's the way we need to start thinking about, or the recovery time shorter. Um, that's the way we need to start thinking about the new way to start innovating healthcare using technology. Thank you. I think what's missing is a more caring attitude in society. One of the problems that we have, for example, in medical research in this country is that it's driven by, by corporations, pretty much. So um, people are not necessarily that interested in geoscience and learning things. Right? They want to do research and stuff that's going to make them money. And that's fine. I don't have anything against it. I'm you know, against people making money and all that. But I'm sure that when you started your company, you know, you didn't start thinking, I want to make a million dollars. What could I do? Don't get me started. Okay. <laughs> so, no, I do want to get started on that subject. You know, so what I think is what's needed is more caring in the way that, that we do things and more interested in just in advancing human knowledge and advancing also the conditions of, of people and, 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 and what we do. And, and I think that if corporate entities are enlightened and they're smart, they should be able to come up with things that is really useful to people and still make, make a profit out of it. I personally decided I wanted to study medicine because I consider myself to be a healer one time, but I wanted to do something where I could make a really good living. Okay. I, grew up, I grew up poor. I, I didn't grow up well, I wanted to do something, but I wanted to do something where I could make a really good living, but at the same time that I feel that I'm actually contributing and doing something that's beneficial to people and that would benefit all of us, right? To me, that's like a perfect world and I think that's what's really missing here right now. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that medicine is now been taken over by corporate entities that are not really interested that much in helping people as much as they are in making a profit. Dr. Harris? Uh, well, that's a good question. I can answer it so ways, but it strikes me that what's missing in healthcare is participation in solving the issues by minorities. We do not have enough of us involved in this process. And so if we if we don't participate, and this and this goes from educating our youth, we talk about STEM education, but also making sure that they get educated in these fields that are relevant for the 21st century, and medicine is included in that. So if we're not knowledgeable uh, in this field, how can we take care of our own communities? I think that's what's missing. And uh, so it's it's nice to, uh, to have a forum like this platform in order for us to have this conversation, hopefully to inspire some of the young people here in Morehouse to take up the, the mantle of being a, a, a provider, a, uh, Caregiver. Dr. Ortiz? So, 
my answer is actually going to summarize everything that has been mentioned here because uh, I know, I hope, and I know that in the future we will continue to develop all these ideas and uh, for the reason of genetic uh, uh, modulation, uh, and artificial intelligence, uh, robotic surgery, that many of the conditions that we're dealing with today are going to be a thing of the past and they're going to be museums. Uh, I mean, people are going to think of, of them as eradicating conditions. But we need the young people, the minorities, who are still being all minorities, but in reality, we are, we are the force. And we need to inspire ourselves, our communities, to be the leaders of tomorrow, to come up with those solutions. And that's why this forum is so important. And finalizing with the, the personalized care, personal touch that we mentioned before, I'll finish again with the same quote that I finished in my presentation. Patients don't care how much we know, they know how much we care. I, you know, as I listen to all of you, um, I guess I can conclude by saying um, data venture is fantastic. The interest is off the charts. Where we're going uh, with medicine is going to be life-changing, life-altering, and obviously life-saving. But for me, what's left to be done is closing that access gap so that men and women of all communities have access to this technology, have access to the clinical trials, uh, have access to preventive medicine. Uh, without access, it truly is the difference between living and dying. So I want to thank you all for participating in this panel, participating in this section of the program, and all of you for joining us today. Thank you all very much. Thank you.